I'm sure that some of you are now at that critical time of the year where you're trying to think of what Christmas presents to get the people in your life that you love. The ones that you don't love, well, that's easy. They don't get any presents, right? Uh, But the ones that you do love, well, they do. And if you're looking for a great gift idea, look no further because I'm going to help you. By the way, welcome to the podcast. Once again, I'm completely out of order, but I'm excited because my friend Dan Koshner has a new book, and it's so funny, and it's so smart and sad and comforting and weird and inventive and affecting, and I'm running out of words, but you have to get it and you have to read it. It's called Separation Anxiety, and it's a book of short stories, and it's just fabulous. I met Dan like 30 years ago in graduate school, and as soon as I saw him, I knew he was trouble because he looked like a writer. It's a look. You know the look. He had it. Now, some people, they have the look, but that's all they have. Not Dan. He looks like a writer, and he writes like a writer. He's fantastic. Trust me. I'm not even sure how to describe his work. Maybe, I don't know, maybe like uh, Raymond Carver meets Captain Beefheart. How about that? That's as close as I can get. The stories in the book are unexpected, and they're filled with left turns and poetic moments and wildly funny lines and instances that are at once both hilarious and utterly heartbreaking. Separation anxiety. Get it. DanielKoshner.com. You're going to love it. I promise you. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. I've been digging for some answers. And I've been running from some truth. Down the road I see a sunset. of my guest today on the program, Jude Cole. Let me tell you a little bit about Jude Cole. Well, the category of things that Jude Cole does is pretty crowded because Jude Cole does a lot of things. A singer-songwriter, a guitarist, a band manager, a producer, a music critic, a record label founder, and a businessman, Jude Cole is a busy dude. Back in the late 70s, the Illinois-born musician got his start playing in Moon Martin and the Ravens. In the early 80s, he joined the English band The Records, and he played on their Crashes album, as well as touring with them all over Europe. After leaving The Records, Cole got his solo career going, and he quickly knocked out a series of perfect pop albums like A View from Third Street and Start the Car. He put his solo career on hold to both manage and co-write songs for Lifehouse, Then in 2003, he and Kiefer Sutherland formed Ironworks Studio and Records. 
signing artists like Ron Sexsmith and Honey Honey. Oh, and he also recorded interview segments for Extra, where he interviewed the Rolling Stones and Bob Seger. Over the years, he's collaborated with Dave Edmonds, Rhett Miller of the old 97s, Beth Orton, Styx, and Peter Noon. So, yeah, Jude Cole is a busy guy. What's he got going on lately besides a lot? Well, he's got two new albums, Coolerator, which is comprised of doo-wop covers from the 50s, and Coupe de Main, an album that reminds us why Cole is one of the most talented and riveting songwriters on the planet. Filled with acoustic tracks, mid-tempo rockers, breezy 70s pop, and an infectious synth-tinged number, Coupe de Main is a poised and hook-laden collection that's catchy, affecting, and unforgettable. Stereo Embers Magazine's editor-at-large David Porter once said of Cole, I found a view from 3rd Street in a used record store in The Hate in 1991, and I fell in love. I was absolutely gobsmacked. Jude Cole has never made a bad record. I still listen to him all the time. Why wasn't Jude Cole all over the radio in the 90s? Truly great rock and roll, all heart, and hooks. He's right. Add to that list, he's a really nice guy. Let's meet him, shall we? Here's me and Jude Cole having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. No, I know. This stuff is like I'm always futzing around and trying to make it. Who knows? <laughs> Let's face it. You got to be a genius to get by today. Well, I mean, judging by that nice stuff behind you, I think you've you've got some genius going on there, my friend. Oh, yeah, well, mainly my banjo is all I do anymore. I played a lot of banjo. I'm really trying to get good at it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Banjo is a tricky one, isn't it? Well, it's um much like uh i guess learning anything you know piano it's a it's a hand memory uh, that you have to literally practice over and over and over again it's the only way it's not like you learn something and go oh yeah i'll remember that because the fingers won't remember it it's like playing a rachmaninoff piece or something you're not going to just remember that you have to do it over and over and over and over and over and over and i've been doing it over and over for a couple of years and i I'm finally getting to the place now where I can play pretty, pretty fast and pretty well. But <clears throat> then there's a new piece where I'm like, oh shit! Now, now my uh, now my hands needs to learn something new. Is that part of the allure of the banjo? Is is that is that the difficulty of it is kind of the alluring? No, I think it's that drone note. You know, it's that it's that. Uh, in a banjo, do you know about the banjo at all? The five I don't. strings. I know. Okay, so, so the high note, it's it's tuned to G, and then the high G is the one that you go to. I I, I don't have my picks on, but like when you play a song like Foggy Mountain Breakdown, it's a 
so that high note is, and then when it's fast, I can't, I can't play it uh, like I would if I had warmed up at all, but when you play it fast, uh, it's, it's kind of an illusion. Uh, and the magic of the banjo is really in the illusion because you're constantly able to float off that drone note. So it just sounds like you're playing uh, a lot of notes and you are, but you're constantly crutching on the, on the, uh, on the drone note. That's what makes it so fun. Yeah, like a, a, a musician like myself, who's not like, I'm not a real no, big note reader, you know, that I can learn to play something well enough. Um, so it's just a fun, fun thing to learn. Well, yeah. there's, there's nothing somber about the banjo. No, well, not, not, uh, not, not the five string with the picks. It's, there's not. Uh, the claw hammer gets into a more Americana somber thing. That's where you use your fingers and you play, you know, kind of hitting the strings a little more. But uh, I don't really like Clawhammer that much. I like the Scruggs method of, you know, fast picking and all that. Where does Steve Martin play? He sounds like he does the the. Does it all. He's really a, a he's an accomplished banjoist. Yeah. So, um, but you find that <clears throat> most people get into the banjo with the Scruggs method because that's what lures them in. And then once they've been doing that for five or 10 years, then they start to get a fascination to the claw hammer. Mm. Well, that hasn't reached me yet. <laughs> I'm not there. <laughs> I don't really like it that much, you know. But I think once you get bored with all the all that stuff, you know, you, you, you then you get into you know, some of the more folkish uh, bluegrass stuff that actually inspired uh, Scruggs. Does the, in terms of, the discipline that you have with the banjo where you sort of like, I just want to just do this for hours. Is that the kind of discipline you've always had in your life when it comes to music or, or would you consider yourself to be a disciplined musician? No, it's the kind of discipline I've had to everything I've ever taken on in my life. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's the one area where I would say, if I have a gift, it's the tenacity because nothing came really that easy to me. Like I was not a natural I might have been a natural singer, but I was not a natural guitar player. And um, you know, for as long as I've been playing, you know, I should be able to play anything. But I listen to guys like Pat Metheny or Steve Lukather or, you know, these guys who could literally run circles around me. And I just go like, what the fuck was I doing for all these years? Like, <laughs> why do I not know any of this stuff, you know? But I was pretty much, <clears throat> um, only really fascinated with beetle pop and and then you know the pentatonic scale blues kind of you know the 70s stuff that we grew up in I, I i didn't really get delve into jazz or anything like that until later in life did bands like yes or genesis did they have any any allure for you or was there a Huge. attraction yeah Huge, yeah but and then that was still you know, there were classical overtones to that music, but it was still very much based in blues. Uh, so it kind of fit in well with, you know, you could listen to Yes, and then the next eight track you would put in in the 70s might be Foghat. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, something as crazy as that, you know, where it's like, wait, what? Now today, if you put the two of those on, you'd go like, one kind of sucks and one doesn't, you know. But 
at the time, you know, anything rock and roll was just cool back then, you know, because you were almost like you weren't a square. You weren't like, you didn't look like your teacher. Right, right, right. But guys like Hackett or um, any of the, any of those prog masters, they, you could tell it was difficult. Like you could, you could hear the complexity of the music. Um, and like, if I read Proust, Proust is complicated. Hemingway doesn't seem complicated, which it, it seems simple, even though it's not. Um, there, there is music, like maybe Foghat's not the best example. That sounds simple, <laughs> but it's pretty boneheaded. <laughs> right. Foghat was pretty boneheaded. I use that as a pretty boneheaded example of some of the music, you know, there was UFO and yeah. Bone Ash. They were good bands, but they were they were kind of boneheaded. There, there was a more yeah. simple approach. Very simple. <laughs> yeah. Who, who's well, a band you know, that- some, some people are just really smart. Yeah. Like they're just smart. Like I listened to Bella Fleck and some of it I don't even really like because it's so jazzy. But then when you hear Bella Fleck go into his Earl Scruggs tribute, it's like, what? I mean, are you fucking kidding? Like a guy that's that good at jazz can play <clears throat> literally any Scruggs tune at 170 beats per minute, like it's nothing. I mean, the guy's just an extraordinary, like where does it come from? I don't have a brain like that. And I can honestly, at my age now, you know, I can honestly look at it and go, I don't have that. I, that's amazing. What I did have, um, was I had a lot of tenacity I and mean, I had a lot of perseverance. Like I did not stop, like a pit bull, you know, when I was onto something, I was just like, I'm gonna, I want this, you know, and ultimately I would get it. And then half the time it was usually to find out that I didn't want it after all, but um, <laughs> no, it's God's comic. Is that sort of like the, the journey is more interesting than the destination? Without a doubt. Yeah. One of the nice things about getting older, and it's not a long list, Jude, but one of the nice things is realizing what you can't do. I think actually clears the way for what you can do. Um, have you found that to be the case? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, that that process of elimination starts becoming a pragmatic reality when you're, I don't know, somewhere in your middle to later 30s, mm -hmm. you go, Wow, you know, maybe I'm not going to learn Japanese one day. <laughs> yeah. And I think there was a point in my life where it's like, wait, how old was McCartney when he did? Okay, I'm not definitely not going to be Paul McCartney. Um, <clears throat> and there are things that you just look at and go, yeah. But, but, you know, then you get to a place in life where you go, each journey has a unique design it's its own thumbprint and it really is a beautiful thing if you learn to only appreciate your own because your own is like no one else's and in my case you know i read all the time man what the hell happened to jude cole like why wasn't he more famous and he should have been and I, I appreciate those comments but what they don't know about me is that i couldn't have scripted my life better if they would have given me a Smith and Corona typewriter and, you know, and a room full of like whiskey and cigarettes and said, okay, go, you know, like write this out. Like I couldn't have come up with a better plan because <clears throat> for my personality, who does not like touring, um, who does not really care for fame, 
I managed to figure out a way to work in the music business and not have to leave home that often. Still enjoy radio success. Still enjoy uh, the, the, the business in a, in a large sense and not have to do the dog and pony show. Even as a young man, was that your preference? Like you'd rather not go out? You were, did you, were you aware of that, that you felt that way? No, I wanted it. And um, it was a very difficult era, decade of finding out like, thinking, oh, I'm almost there, I'm almost there. And then, oh, uh, no, there's one more hurdle, one more hurdle. And it finally becomes that girl you want to date so badly, but that by the time she wants to date you, you don't even want to date her anymore. Yeah. Uh, it, it really became that for me. It's like, ah, that's why I think people do get the sincerity of like, no, I'm not releasing my records to try and make it. Fuck you. <laughs> that's not what I'm doing it for. I'm doing it because I really, you know, I watch guys like Rick Beato, and I go, you can do better, Jude. You can do better. Like, or, uh, you know, Bella Fleck is another great example. It's just these guys that are just so gifted with their minds and their ability to translate the music and explain why it works and all that. And I, <clears throat> and I think with COVID and everything at 61, it was, you know, it was kind of a nice break for me to go, oh yeah, like there's me. You know, I've been devoting my, my time to so many other artists for so long. And frankly, 95% of that is futile, you know, um, because you, you get into dealing with other personalities and artists can be so, uh, quite self-salvatoring uh, in large part. So when you find that rare artist like a Jason Wade of Lifehouse who actually gets the ball and slam dunks it, you know, you go, oh, well, Okay, there are champions, but most are not. So devoting my time to other people was was uh, really learning and fun and, and, and had its moments, but there was a lot of uh, frustration there too. So I, I, it's a great time for me to just be able to say, I'm doing whatever it is that I want to do that day. It's a very haunting quote to think most are not champions, because I, I think you're 100% right. And when you're working behind the scenes and you see somebody coming through who's hungry and wants it, but you can tell they're not a champion. Um, can you see that coming a mile away or, or is that something you can, right? As a manager, you can, you can have a conversation and pretty much be able to know by what comes out of their mouth. <clears throat> um, you know, there are really evident signs, really, really evident signs. What for you, like when the first record came out compared to where you are now with these records, what's what's the biggest change for you? Is it perspective? Because I mean, artistically, obviously we can talk about that, but has your perspective changed since then? I mean, I would imagine it has. Well, it certainly has, yeah. Uh, they say that, who was it? Some, I don't know whether it was Sylvester Stallone or no. Who said this? He said, uh, in the life of an artist, you die twice. Or maybe it was in the life of an actor, you die twice. And the first page, Burt Reynolds. I think that he, he's, an actor dies twice and the first death is the most painful. Uh, the death of the ego is brutal if you don't expect it. And I had kind of a God's blessing of 
being let down enough times to where I kind of got, oh, oh I get it. I get the, and, and, and so the ego died a, a long time ago, which is a wonderful gift because when your ego dies, you can look at things with your eyes wide open and not feel self-conscious about it. Uh, you don't feel self-conscious about maybe not getting chosen to be the one or maybe not being picked out and spoken about or you didn't get this award or you didn't get, like, it doesn't make you flinch anymore. Um, that's, a, that's a really freeing vehicle when you can get that. But when you're under the guise of like, hey man, I matter. And it's like Jay Leno uh, said one time, he said, you know, it's funny, like when you're broke, everything's funny. You know, you go to, you go to wind up your uh, window and the thing breaks and it's like, everything is a comedy back then. And I'm trying to, sorry if I'm going into his, uh, <laughs> his voice a little bit, but I'm not very good at it. But anyway, <clears throat> that's true because a really wealthy person they don't have the ability to laugh at themselves. If their Bentley window doesn't work, it's this fucking mechanic. I'll never go back to, you know, it's like everything is a stress with, with someone who's really, you know, really successful and has a lot to lose. And so it's, it's always the, uh, the lesser that, that, that can laugh at themselves a little bit. So that ego being dead is really, I think a, for me, it was the key to life. It's like the ego dies, now you can work freely. Yeah, absolutely. And now you can look at yourself um, with, uh, with some perspective. It's very hard to see yourself as an artist when you, you know, <clears throat> I have had so many artists come to me and go, um, yeah, well, you know, like, I just don't want people to think like I'm, and I always would say, why don't you just get on the map? And then you can begin to create, like, don't worry about, like, just, this is a good song. Yeah, but I mean, like, you know, Radiohead wouldn't, like, you're not Radiohead, darling, you're not Radiohead. And you probably never will be. Not against you, but the odds are not good. So why don't you just get on the map and then, like, then begin to drive and steer and navigate and turn this into something, you know, that you can do where you can create your own destiny, but you know, without being on the map, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying. So, it, <clears throat> so there's a lot of that in artistry. Yeah, and I and I think like you know, some, I mean, you know, there's no reason to 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 feel like the young Jude Cole in 1987. Like you understand why he felt the way he felt, right? Like before the ego got had to die you you get where he was coming from if we can speak like that i mean it's it makes sense well i didn't come from much you know i didn't come from any money i had real money issues growing up as a catholic you know easier to easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven i mean that's a that's a pretty bold statement that can that can make you wonder like whether you should have any money or not those kinds of things were beliefs that really can impede your your ability to make money i had to become friends with money and friends with people who had money there are a lot of things that had to change in my life and it was a long time for me to sort of um and again i think that was a blessing because i'm 61 and i feel 27 most days i feel like i'm still learning still growing still releasing a record where i can look at it and go 
yeah, I think I might have improved there. You know, uh, lyrically, I I feel like a better writer. I, I, you know, I feel like I have a reason to write a song now, and then it becomes a song because there was a reason to write it. Otherwise, I, I put it down. Uh, I'm having fun with it, and I guess Alex is what I could really just say. I, I, with zero expectations of what it could actually do. Um, it still goes on my wall and to some, you know, in, a, in a proverbial sense, and I, I can look at it and go, okay, I think I could do better this time. If I do, if I go over here and maybe improve on this or whatever. And then, you know, what's it for? Like that gets into the, why are we here question? Yeah. <laughs> That's a big one. That's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Why are we here? I don't know. Why do you, you know, the Howard Rourke thing in uh, in the Fountainhead, you know, it's like, oh, they they destroyed your building. Did you hear? It's like, yeah, I heard it. So how do you feel about them destroying your building? He's like, well, I already made it. It's interesting. It makes me think like what you just said. I, I imagine Paul McCartney, who I wonder if he thinks I could do better. I wonder if he still has that sort of as an artist, whether you're McCartney or you're UFO, if you're always chasing the I can do better and that's what keeps you going. I mean, I don't know. Well, I would, I would guess if I had a bullet to my head uh, or a gun to my head, I would say absolutely he has it tenfold over most artists because, you know, he has had that, just that beautiful grace of never stopping, of being able to just constantly take his experiences and put them into, in, into life and song. And I am just in, you know, there's not a lot of people who I, I marvel over and i marvel over him not just because of the beatles but his ability to say well you know think i'll write a birthday song you know some of these other writers have birthday songs that play every every birthday i think i'll have one and so he writes one you know yeah. and then there's one you know about that's uh, just another day okay we'll just write another day <laughs> and then he's got another song that's played every um um uh, what's the other one? Let's see. He's got the birthday one. He's got the Christmas song. It's played every Christmas. You hear it a million times. And it's one of my favorite Christmas songs. Simply having a wonderful Christmas times. It's great. You know, that's McCartney in our lifetime. He did that. Did punk rock do anything for you? Or, did it, or were you so into the Beatles and into pop that it sort of, that it passed you? No, it didn't pass me. Uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say LA punk, the LA punk scene passed me. Okay. I didn't care for it. Sunset Boulevard was something I didn't really like going and visiting when, when all the punk rockers were out. I didn't feel a part of that scene. But what I did feel very much a part of was that I, I joined Moon Martin's band in 78 and then the records in 79 and I was touring Europe quite a lot. And the skinny tire of new wave but when I say new wave, I mean, you know, the Buzzcocks were in there, the Dickies were in there. Uh, <clears throat> there was a lot of bands that were great that weren't that thrashing spike, you know, look, you know, the pins and needles coming out of every orifice. That was kind of a different thing. Uh, the Dead Kennedys and, and all that went along with that punk rock thing, that missed me a bit. Maybe the nihilism of, of all that stuff? I didn't believe it. Now, funny enough, all those guys are out there going, get the vax, man, get the vax. And I'm like, that doesn't sound very punk rock to me. Like, 
so I never believed it. I never bought it. And I still don't. And I still, and there are many artists who come out today where I go, well, that's the real deal there, but they're far and few between. And you know, much of it is, much of it is, uh, is posing. And it always has been since the advent of MTV, hasn't it? Yeah, I think posing was a big part of it. And I think, but if you take the Buzzcocks and if you take the Dickies, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned them. Those are great pop songs. I mean, yeah. if you, those are just great pop songs that they were writing. I mean, they're playing them fast. So I guess that made them pop. Love great. Yeah, that was their big, uh, the, the Buzzcocks. That was a great song. It's a great song. Have I fallen in love, right? Ever fallen in love, and then and I think that uh, you know, um, Fine Young Cannibal slowed it down and made it a hit um, back in the mid '80s, and it was oh, like, oh, yeah, it's a yeah. great song. It's just a really great song. Um, but you know, those those are pop songs. I mean, I think those are that's what makes it even like the knack. We're talking about the skinny tie. Like those are those are great pop songs. Yeah, they were. And you that know, was a really fun era, and it was retro Beatles, is what it was. That's, that's all right. It really was because everybody. Almost everybody played a Beatles song in their set back then because it was, it was just like it had been twenty years. It was like nineteen eighty, and it had been almost twenty years since the Beatles first came out. And so everybody was, you know, Elvis. You could go on. You could go to London and uh, what was the Kensington Market? Um, and Kensington Market was full of these like flea market type shops. It was almost like a cross between the British and India. You know, they sold jackets and shoes and the, uh, the you know, all those fifties uh, kind of, you know, the garb. And then they would sell buttons. I still have many of the buttons that I got back then. Um, but this is when Elvis Costello was breaking and Blondie was breaking and the Talking Heads and all those bands. And then you had like English bands who would, you thought were going to be the same, like the Q-Tips and who ended up being uh, that, that singer that did the Paul and Oates cover later. Um, Every time you go away, Paul's. Oh, Paul Young. Paul Young. He was in a band called the Q-Tips. And so Melody Maker and Enemy and all those things, those were really, you know, those those days were a blast. Living in London at the time and, and experiencing all that. So I did feel adjacent to the scene that was much hipper than I, but I never really felt a part of it. I was always just kind of an observer. Did playing as a 20 year old guy in a band, uh, you know, touring in Europe, what did that do for the ego that would later be annihilated? Like we were talking about before, did that, was that a healthy thing? I mean, I imagine that it could, it could be both. No, I I was making so little money that there was always a reminder, like, don't get too far above your raising yet, dude. You ain't gonna even pay your rent. And so there were little things, you know, some people would be really impressed with that you could, that you were a touring musician. So that was kind of cool. And then, you know, living in London, as I did when I joined the records, I, I, I went and recorded their album and lived there for about six months. And I remember the, 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 the accent rubbed off on me a bit. I was just enough of a sponge that, you know, I would start asking my questions like this, you know, are you going? Uh, <laughs> I changed my dialect, you know, like I didn't know who I was yet, but I did know who I was too. You know, I didn't, I didn't have a firm grasp on being comfortable with myself, but I don't think I've ever really been that different. I was always a bit of a square peg and I still am. 
Do you think that money is as a kind of a transactional thing? Um, that almost if, if you make money, somehow it validates the art, the art that was made. And we know that's not true. Um, in some cases it can be, but for the most part it isn't. Um, did you sort of bake into uh, your art the idea of I'm not making money on this? Um, how did that affect the way that you thought about yourself as an artist? You, you know, that is a, that's like a, a moving cell. It's constantly changing. I don't think it's ever, there are times where you could have asked me that question and I would have said, well, if there's no money in it, I probably won't get very enthused about doing it. But I seem to be going through a period where making my records and making my music, and I'm even doing a little bit of a meditation, a kind of a new slant on a meditation um, uh, website and company uh, as well, because I've always been inspired by that stuff. I'm having so much fun with it that it's very reminiscent of kind of when I was 13 and I started to think I could play in a band. And well, then that was, the, then the process then was uh, about getting the guitar, going over a song over and over and over again until and then you go to the band and then you go over there with the band over and over again. And then you play it in the four sets a night wedding that you're playing or the bar or whatever it is. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, bam, success. That was, that was the, inspiration and the goal was achieved the goal being achieved was that i got to play this live and everybody liked it there, were, there was no real carrot of money no business no political no fame nothing like that um it's come full circle into that and there's some real joy there like so you have to have money to do that i do acknowledge that you can't just you know it, you, but if you have the ability to to look at your art more as like, well, no, this is my hobby. If anything ever happens to it, then I'll just put it out there in the universe. Like that, you know, that's a good song and I hope it finds its way. It seems to me that you're more creatively alive now than you've ever been, um, which I find inspiring for guys like us. Well, again, it's, the, it's that death of the ego, isn't it? That's a blank canvas. Whereas when you have all of these things like, oh, well, Jude Cole wouldn't do that. It's like, when you have that as your premise, well, you've got all these boundaries and barricades and things. And Alex, I hate to cut you off. Um, I'm already late for another. Oh, no. I'm sorry to do that to you, Jude. We were waxing philosophical the whole time, but I really enjoyed that. Me too. And thank you for, for talking to me. And hopefully we'll have you back on again. Thank you back. And uh, yes, I will do that. Hang on a second. I'm just updating my resume. Uh, made Jude Cole late. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. We had 30 minutes, and 30 minutes went really fast because talking to Jude Cole is like biting into a Snickers bar. There's a lot in every bite. He has a lot to say. He has a lot of uh, life experience and uh, music industry experience, and the guy is fascinating. So, um, you know, we'll have them on again 
and uh, we'll get to the bottom of Jude Cole. Well, we'll try. I mean, he is a remarkable person with remarkable stories, and, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said. In the meantime, buy his new albums. They're incredible. Coolerator and Coupe de Main. Both awesome. And they should be on your year-end best of lists if you make such a thing. Uh, if you don't, start now. You've got one and two uh, Jude Cole albums right there at the top of your list. JudeCole.com is where you need to go to find out everything about Jude Cole and buy the albums there as well. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. BombshellRadio.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with our radio station. Did I mention we're on 365 days a year, seven days a week? I guess that's kind of implied 24 hours a day. Not too shabby, right? Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate and review, and tell a friend. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor. You can follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast. Go ahead and email me if you're an email kind of person. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Let's close the show with a longer listen to When You're Being Lied To from Jude Cole's brand new album, Coupe de Maine. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. I've been digging for some answers And I've been running from some truth Down the road I see a sunset